0: I keep coming back to and i've seen it in my own life it's how we pick ourselves up when we fall
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know,
0: what do we do at that point that's where who we are is really defined not by making the mistake but how we deal with it, it
1: starts right-
0: Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger bring over 90 years of clinical experience to this important podcast, and they offer you a guarantee. You will gain something of personal value from each episode. And now, what matters most.
1: It starts right here. Start right here. We're back. Dr. Allen Berger. I'm Tom Rutledge. Yesterday I had my second COVID shot. Yeah. I am I am a vaccinated man.
0: Love it. So am I. I hear a song in there
1: somewhere. That's what I thought, too. I thought just then when I I said that, I said, I think we need to write a song. I'm a vaccinated man. It's
2: like, uh, all right, I'll see what I can do. I'm not much on the music, but I can come up with some lyrics. So we'll see. And uh, Alan, uh, you you said that uh, one of those shots really took the wind out of you. Uh, How was yours, Tom? The second one
0: that I had. how, How did the second one go for you,
2: it's okay. It was
1: yest- yesterday. I, now I'm bl- I'm blaming the fact that my wife thought I was grumpy yesterday on the shot. That's, uh, so I want you guys stick with me on that because if if, if she contacts you, like, it was,
0: well. They say that it's definitely not his character. Yeah, he definitely. Was <laughs>
1: Definitely. No, I was, I was tired. I, I was really, I, I really was tired and I slept and things like that, but I didn't feel bad and when I had, when I had the shingles shot, and this is my favorite tongue twister. My second shingles shot knocked me on my ass. And I've since found out from other people. I was talking to the pharmacist who gave me this shot yesterday. She said, that's pretty normal that that the second shot for shingles is that way. But uh, no, I, I feel pretty, I, I, you know, I'm I, my arm is sore, but that's it. I've got my
2: appointment. My appointment is, uh, at the end of April. So I'm very excited about that. Congratulations. I've got my, yeah. I've got my laundry list of, uh, post pandemic, uh, social things that I'm looking forward to. Absolutely, I you know I talked I talked with this pharmacist who gave me the
1: shot, and just you know just because of course I'm just giddy and they're happy about that. And I, you know, she just said, have, can, you, can you ever remember a time when people were so excited to get shots? You know, it's like it's like she said no, and she told me a couple of stories. And one one woman that was in there, she said was just in tears. She was so grateful for it. And, you know, we were just talking about how many just shared a little bit about how many people we know that have really had such a hard time to. And especially when I was talking with her about was the people I know that, that don't, I mean, man, I've had it easy. I can work, you know, I can work at home. I you know, I'm fine here. So, but I mean, you know, people who have to go have had to go out and work and make a living uh, in the midst of this stuff and just try to be as safe as they possibly can. It's, it's like, this is that that, that, that's, it's been a hell of a year.
0: Really has Really has been a hell of a year.
1: So for our, uh, now that today's topic, if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, today's topic is really Patrick's idea yes. that yeah, he, 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 it was so explain it Patrick to us so that we, so that we can act like we know what it is, but you're explaining it to us and we're, we're just kind of getting it again.
2: Sure. Well, uh, I'm just fascinated by your early careers and, uh, you know, the thought of you guys as, uh young men, uh, just kind of figuring out, uh, make, you know, making it up as you go along, but kind of like, uh, laying the foundation for, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, some of the philosophies that you are espousing, uh, mm. weekly on the podcast and, mm-hmm. um, what, uh, you know, what your relationship to those younger versions of yourselves are today and what, you know, uh, what, what, what have you learned or what, you know, what, what do you think is uh, notable, uh, in terms of your lessons and, uh, maybe uh, wisdom to share from the, uh, the arc there.
1: I love it. Alan, he's going to let us just reminisce.
2: I love It's great.
0: Right? <laughs> I was just thinking it's, it's almost like a fantasy I've already had is i always had to go back and visit the dinosaurs. <laughs> 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 I
2: don't
0: know why that came to me when you, your younger lives, my God, I didn't think we were that old Tom. What, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on
2: here? So you're like stegosaurus you know, <laughs> stegosaurus.
1: I'm not, I'm not old until I have to bend over or something like that. You know, some intricate move like that. Um, uh, you don't have to, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, you know, that's, uh, it's interesting to me because one of the things I've thought and Patrick, I think you and I have may have this in, t- in common, what I would say to a younger version of myself, if I could go back and, and you know, the, the fun the, to make that fun, it's, it, you know, it can't be, you can't go, I couldn't, you could it would not work to let me go back and, and just bore myself for three days, you know, with that, it's like, it's, you got to go back and you say, you only have, you can only, you know, you can only share two things or you can only do this or this. And what, what would it be? It kind of a values clarification thing. So, um, and it's, um, and I've really become aware through the years that, it, and you know this as a as a parent, uh, Alan, of, of 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 adult children and of young children, is that apparently the design is, and tell me if I'm right about this, the design is that there are some things that people just fucking have to learn for themselves, that that we can't hand them directly, even though it would change their lives forever for the better.
0: Yeah, that's right well, that's so true. And look, and, 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 you know, my first response to your question is, is like, how do you get from here or how do you get here from there? Right. In terms of our past. And I, you know, my mother wouldn't have given you a plug, you know, a wooden nickel for my chances (laughs) of being successful in life. I mean, I was, I was just a mess. I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to school. I was getting drunk most nights of the week. I was a teenage alcoholic. I'm a high school dropout. I mean, she couldn't wait to sign the papers to get me off to the Marine Corps hoping that maybe they'd straighten my, my ass out. So, I mean, early on, I was completely lost. I mean, after my father passed away and the trauma of that and then starting To drink and becoming an alcoholic, man, my early years in life were very, very, um, I was lost, man. I was in trouble and lost. And, And as I look back, one of the things that stands out to me, I wish during those early years, someone would have come up to me and said, look, what's going on? What's happening in your life? What is all this behavior saying? I mean, today I know that my behavior was communicating how much pain and trouble I was in, but I wasn't able to go to anybody and say, I'm in pain and in trouble and I need help. I, I, those words weren't available to me. Well, I, you didn't think of it that way, did you? I didn't think of it at all. I mean, I was just, yeah. I was, I was you know, what do they call it in psychiatry or psychology, acting out. I was living out my, my, Mm -hmm. my drama is what I was doing the way Mm -hmm. I think about it. And, and I was I was, I was a mess. Now, I will say this, that through some of my own work, my own psychotherapy and work I've done in my recovery, I realized that one of the things that motivates me to do the work I do is I don't want anyone to feel what I felt that I was in trouble and that nobody was going to ask the question, how are you doing with all this? How are you feeling? What's going on? Share with me your experience. So that's a big motivator in my life is that, you know, I don't want anyone to be unseen in that way because I know what it meant to me. I know what, what it meant to me when I was first seen, when I was 19 years old and my sponsor, Tom, um, that Tom McCall, that Tom mm-hmm. Rutledge knows. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know what happened when he sat down and started to talk to me and really see me. I mean, that just opened up the possibilities in my life. Like, it, it was amazing. I mean, it was an incredible therapeutic experience yeah. and a corrective emotional experience in so many ways. And, and that started my recovery back in 1971. I mean, that one person seeing me and having faith in me, those are the two things I experienced from him. Just, I mean, it was what started this whole evolution and development in my life. And look, it hasn't been a straight line, and I've just done great all the time. I've had troubles. I mean, in 2004, I, I had what I would call an emotional relapse and all kinds of stuff. But I'll tell you the one thing that this is all is given me is the ability to process and digest my experience and learn from it. Mm-hmm. I And I continue to do that today. Yeah. I mean, I am continuing to process that today.
1: I, I love the fact that the, 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 I love when you, I mean, because hindsight is the only accurate insight we can possibly have. So, so, you know, we try to have it as we go along, but, but when you look back and you say, you know, part of the reason, a big part of the reason of why you do what you do is because you don't want anybody else to experience what you experienced. And specifically, you know, you go to the question, you know, what's going on with you? And I, and I just, this, maybe this is just the storyteller in me or whatever, but I'm going like, I just, I love the fact that not only did, did that motivate you to go in this direction, it motivated you to take on a career that is, that's the definition of the career. That's, that's your job description to ask people, Hey, what's going on here? You know, and, and not just, and not just in the way that says how to do, you know, it's just, it's like, no, 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 no. What's really going on? Right. And, well, and keep and keep asking. I mean, so one of the weird things about our job is we, is we, you know, if we see somebody over for a long term over time, what do we do? We get together with them ever so every so often or every week or twice a week or whatever we're getting. And we ask them one question. And what, I try to think of different ways to ask it, but it's like, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, and here we go again. And it's like, I love, I love that. And that talk about a talk about making good use of corrective healing experience for you and your ripple effect to take that and keep going with it. And you, and you, and you at at the end of what you just said, I think this is, I don't, I mean, this is not unique to either one of us, but, um, I definitely think that for me, this is, I'm more aware of this. I would have said, I think I would have said the same thing when I was in my forties or fifties, but it's like that, you know, I'm more aware of this than ever before at a deeper level. And I think that you and I share this as corny as it may sound. It really is about doing it right now. Am I doing that today? You know, and, and one of the great things I've learned through the years is that when I'm not, I can, start. That's, that's one of the reasons I love, you know, I don't know that we, I don't know. I even thought about that when we come up with, with the name of our podcast, but start right here is, is, is it. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's, you, you basically, you know, What well, like I always say, it's like, you know, you, you, physically, we know this, we don't fall down and then say, well, I'm going to get up tomorrow or I'll get up, you know, if I fell down, fell, fell down on Friday afternoon, I don't say I'll get up on Monday you know, but that's how we do with our, with taking care of ourselves and our behavioral responsibilities and things like that. The idea is when you fall down, you get right back up. And that's, that's the life we're living right now as best we can. And, and holding, you know, and we're among other people that we know, we hold, we we help
2: to hold each other accountable to that. I'm just yeah. curious. Did you ever get to give your mom that wooden nickel? <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that would have been a good thing to do. I, I, <laughs> I did reconnect, you know, or I did start to have a dialogue with her about what happened back then. Again, it was so interesting. Her experience was so different than mine. She thought for many years that I blamed her for my dad's death. That's what she lived with. And she thought all of my anger and acting out was towards her. She took it so personal. And I told her that, you know, I didn't blame you for dad's death. What I was mad at you about was that. You were so lost in your grief that there didn't seem to be room for mine. And I'm mm-hmm. um, not faulting you for that. That just was the reality that, of your experience. You were devastated. And I was mm-hmm. devastated. And we couldn't find each other in our devastation. And for many years, I was very angry at her for that. And my grandfather, mm-hmm. I mean, it was the same way. This was his only son. And he was so devastated when my mm-hmm. dad died. That he was lamenting all the time. This is not what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to bury your son. He's supposed mm-hmm. to bury you. And that was, that was the first time somebody articulated those words. When that mm-hmm. happened in my life, I now realize that there was a whole way life was supposed to be. And I'm sure that was inside of me as well. But now I can yeah. hear it from my grandfather. He was saying it. My mom was saying it. This wasn't supposed to happen. Your dad was only 39. I was supposed to grow old with this man. I mean, so all of a sudden I saw what was going on is that life there is a supposed to, right? There is an expectation.
1: They were for, yeah. When I never thought about this way, but I always say that, Every, every in life has in our co- collective consciousness, but in each of our families, we have these invisible policy manuals that everybody knows what they say, but we don't ever say them out loud. But I ever thought about that at a time like that, people actually read from the manual aloud, big time. And, oh. and both your both your mom and your and your grandfather were doing just that. They were looking it up and going like, "This was against the rules. This was not supposed to happen. I've been cheated," you know. That's right. And, And I love your description of being, of, I don't know. I just have such a visual of, of, of the, just the murkiness and the fogginess of, of all that grief. And you can, you can't find your mom.
0: Yeah, that's right. Couldn't find her. Couldn't find her. was so lost. And in my siblings, the same thing. I mean, the family just pivoted on that experience. And the other thing I realized is how emotionally dependent we were, and I, I'll i give my, I was a kid, so I'm not going to fault myself for it. But mm-hmm. what I realized is how emotionally dependent my mom was on him. My grandfather mm-hmm. was okay. on him. Is their lives were totally shattered. Now, look, it's a big loss. I'm not saying it shouldn't, they no. shouldn't have been cavalier about it. But it right. was also, and look, this is a very typical 50s, 60s family structure. The f- head of the family was my dad. He was the the he was the breadwinner. He made all the major financial decisions. Mom made all the decisions about dinner. <laughs> that was <laughs> her job. She cooked the pasta. She cooked the meatloaf. She cooked <laughs> the, the fish sticks. You know what I mean? The fish sticks, fish sticks. And, and <laughs> I remember fish sticks. Cooked, the other thing she cooked, which most people don't eat today, is she cooked liver, chicken liver. We ate a whole oh, chicken geez. liver with onions and potatoes.
2: Uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to try that.
0: It was it was I think it's delicious. I mean, I, I love going to a Jewish deli now and getting the you know the, the chopped liver that they have. I mean it's mm-hmm. delicious on a sandwich for me. I had one earlier today. I mean
2: Well Tom, you're I mean in Texas they've got Lubies, they serve it at Luby's, don't they? <laughs> we do yeah. have Lubies, yeah. I've never had it at Lubies. Been to many
1: Lubies though. That's <laughs> God, I hadn't thought of movies forever. Uh, yeah, my um, you got sober at nineteen. Nineteen,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Wow. Years see, I, see, that's one of the things that is interesting to me. And I'm, 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 I'm remembering your original question, Patrick. i was, I was just to me the, the idea, and because, and I can speak, I can speak about my experience with this. The idea of going through my twenties with, of course, I had no experience going through my twenties sober, but. I have such great admiration for people who have, it's, it's like, because of course I cannot imagine. And of course I can't because I didn't have that experience, but I, you know, I cannot imagine doing that. It's like, it just seems like, like, uh, it,
2: must, it must be nice, huh? You know, cause I didn't have that experience either. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How old, were, how old were you, Patrick, when you got, when you got sober? Uh, 31. Okay. So we're my twenties
2: to... were rough, you know?
1: Right. Me too. Right there. I think, I think I was like 30, I think I was 32 when, when I got sober, it's like, uh, or like, I like to put it like when my wife told me I couldn't drink anymore.
0: <laughs> 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 oh, and,
1: and, and all I had to say, let me tell you this, this is, this is the after, I, you know, keep in mind, talk about, uh, uh, I'll tell I'll tell stories about myself professionally. I was a, I was the uh, the clinical director and had helped develop the program uh, of of an alcohol al- out one of the first out al- alcohol and drug outpatient programs before we even called it IOP. We just called it intensive outpatient. And I was the clinical director of an alcohol and drug pro- treatment program when when my wife confronted my alcoholism. So you know I I refer to that time of my life as treating by day, drinking by night. You know and 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 and, and <laughs> and and talk and talk about how denial has to work overtime when i'm constantly and i look back i was constantly having to differentiate myself from the clients because I'm, I'm sitting there doing these intake evaluations of these guys and of course i you know i'm an alcoholic but i'm but i'm i'm different from them uh and i'm not like those guys and it was uh, uh, it was a, a, a pretty exa- exhausting time during those last last few years, but but she she got so she got sober. She's one of those weird people that got sober because she realized she needed to. And she she'd been in so much Al-Anon because she'd been married to another addict, had two 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 parents who were addicts. It's like and uh, and what she said to me the night she she confronted me. I'd been she'd been sober about six months, and she said, "I'm not going to do this again." It was it was a great moment of emotional sobriety. As a matter of fact, Alan, it's like she. I mean, she she will describe it as being totally petrified and freaked out. But but to me, she was steady as a rock, and she just said, "I'm not going to do this again. I've done it. I've watched my parents do this. I watched my first husband do this, and I'm not going to do it. You you either get in recovery now, or you move out tomorrow." And she made it very clear which one of us was moving out, even at that point. Um, so,
2: so it's kind I of a- was. Beautiful, you know, it's kind of a beautiful it's, thing. Oh, it, it is a beautiful
1: thing. And it's, and what, and, and she's actually done a few things for my immature ass, you know, through the years that, uh, that has, has saved me. And it's, it's like, no, it's the fact that, um, no, the fact that she loved me so much and that she, and that she did that and that we, that uh, gave me the chance to, to, to um, remedy that. Uh, and then she and I, basically we were both drinking when we got together. So we're, you know, we're, we're living, breathing proof that you don't have to, fi- you know, you don't have to find, find the healthiest people in the world to get in a relationship with. You just have to find people who are willing to grow. You know, that's what I, I tell, what I tell young people all the time is like, find somebody who's willing to grow with you. It's like, you know, it's like you, if, if you both come from a, you know, if you come from a really dysfunctional family, I promise you, you're not going to be attracted to or attractive to somebody who has got it all together. We're just not, it's like, it's, I mean, we may, we may be, some of us are bad enough that we're going to be attracted to people who are healthier than we are, but it's like, they're, they're going to have their own stuff, you know? And, and so the idea is, it's like, no, it's about willingness. It's about the stuff we talk about with recovery. So I cheated actually. I, I, this is, I, I don't know that I've ever admitted this. I've admitted this to many individuals that admitted it in a meeting before. I don't know if I've ever admitted it publicly. I cheated and, and came in the AA back door. I didn't want to lose my job. And so I, I just started going to meetings a long way away <laughs> from where I was. And I, and I and, and did that and did meetings that I knew that other people th- that I knew didn't go. And I How did that you have for- to drive how far do you have to drive uh, for that? Uh, it was I probably probably I uh, probably uh, the main meeting I went to was about forty five minutes away. It was like you know got you know Metro natural Nashville it wasn't as big as it is now, but you could go out to an outlying county and stuff like that. One of them when I I kind live out in Cheatham County now, I used to come out to this meeting sometimes. It's um. But then, about then, about a year into my sobriety, I just began to drop when we were when I was talking with other people and colleagues and stuff. I was just drop stuff in there to say like, yeah, when I was you know when I was still drinking, da, 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 da. and then people would go like, oh, I didn't know you were recovering. Or, oh yeah, man, and of course, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I cheated to do that, and, I, and so I'm, I'm admitting it publicly. But it's, um, uh, it's twelve steps saved my life. There's no doubt about it. My wife and twelve steps did that. So. But one of the things that, you know, but it's like what Alan's talking about. I don't know that if you're, when you ask initially about, you know, how we developed what we do today, if if I didn't have all of that experience, uh, all of that crazy drunken experience, I don't, I can't even imagine what I would be doing, how I would be doing my work today. It's so, so much of it is based, is based on, uh, my own personal experience and what was going on with me and what I, you know, and I'm trying not to overlay my experience on other people. I'll try to use it to to their advantage, but, but it's like, you know, all the stuff I do about the various characters in your head, you know, the, the separating from your addiction, separating from your should monster and all this other stuff. That's all, that's all my recovery. That's, that's the stuff that, that I had to, to recover from. And those are the things that I discovered along the way that, that uh, I began to develop in more detail because, because they really worked for me.
2: I think a common uh, expectation people have is that they're going to arrive someplace so that there will be a sensation of having beaten the game of life when it's really a daily practice is what you guys are talking about. You've disabused yeah. yourselves yep. of... That's right. Like,
1: well, it's like what Alan said, how did we get here? He go like, I don't remember getting here. But as far as having to remember anything about what it is I do or how I do it, I don't do any of that anymore, haven't for a long time, I don't think I just go in and sit down. And I really do. uh, It's I mean, and I don't mean to to be this is not me taking it lightly. I really do, do say that what I do is I have conversations for a living. And my job description is to try to be helpful. Yeah. to people you know and there's a lot of things i know that can be helpful but so, and sometimes sometimes you know specific therapeutic techniques are are in order and sometimes just sitting and hanging and rapping with somebody is to what is what i do and it's like you know and I, and i think you know what happens over time is you develop a, a sense of a sense of that it's like it's, it's you know, just being helpful for a living is a it's it's just a lot of things and you got to um, you, you just need to have a big tool chest i think you know, but I, what I remember learning now—fun. Some of the fun stuff is I remember learning in graduate school. When you learn, you imitate, right, Alan? It's, it's like, 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 yeah. So, so, so I, I look back and, and one of the things I'll say in one of my, uh, my training workshops sometimes is I'll take a moment to thank the, the the people who were who were either naive and kind or just stupid and allowed me to be their therapist when I was first a therapist and say, you know, thank them. I appreciate that because I, because I don't know how they must how they would have kept up with me because, because I was learning by imitating. So one, one week I might be Carl Rogers, you know, who's this reflective listener, you know, very kind, very gentle energy. And the next week I might've read a book by Albert Ellis, who is the guy who's just as likely just to listen to you for a little while and then just say Horse shit That's just shit So I, I was kind of all over the map in terms of, of who I was and when I was trying that stuff so I really appreciate people's patience with that before it began to integrate uh, into into something that was that was ultimately mine uh, but that's an, that's a necessary part of growing
2: Alan talked about uh, you know p- part of what uh, motivates uh, what he does for a living is wanting to make sure that other people don't go through what he went through yeah. would you say that that's what brought you to this as well? It didn't. Bring, it didn't bring me to it. Not consciously.
1: It, nothing brought me to this consciously, because in this, some people this, this has humor to it. But it's, not, it's I have no memory whatsoever of ever make, making a decision to become a therapist. Uh, you know, I, I, I say with with humor, but possibly in an alcoholic blackout. It's like. But it's it's. I woke up as a therapist in, in my, when I was in recovery. I it's um. It was really a default thing. It was like I was going to be. I was going to be a writer that I was, I was two things as a kid. I was a, I was a writer and I was a magician. And I did work briefly professionally when I got to be a young, young adult as a magician in restaurants and things like that. And that was fun. I got a job as a social, my first job as a social worker was because I was working in night shift at the Fulton state hospital in Fulton, Missouri. And I was working geriatrics and that meant I was cleaning the beds at night and, and taking care of old people that, uh, and and by the way, I hated that job. And I would and one day we'll have to talk about that. I would not trade what I learned from that experience of being with those those old people. Not only old people, but old people at at the state hospital. This is the last stopover. This is where most of their families had abandoned them. That were not there. It's like, and God, it was it was both it was horrific, but it was it was enlightening, and it was just it was. There were some real sweet moments to that. But I, I just wanted a day job. And so this day, the a job opened as a social worker. I got a job as the social worker working with my first my first job as a social worker and working with uh, um child molesters, uh serial rapists, and murderers. Uh these and it's it's um uh, what a way to start, huh? And uh, and I was happy to have the, I was happy to have the job because because I got off at, I got off at five o'clock and I could go drinking with my friends. So, and then while I was there, I just, I ended up liking and really admiring a couple of the social workers that were there. So, so not, and truly not being very much of an imaginative person just, I was still at that point, assuming somebody was, you know, all the things I would just randomly, you know, no internet and stuff like that back in those days. send out things to publishers for publication. I was just still assuming that somebody, somebody was going to, you know, discover my genius, you know, and come knocking on my door and, you know, you know, be a rich and famous. As poet, or what, or great novelist, or whatever. Uh, so I really wasn't paying much attention to that. I just, I just to well, I'll go to. So I will go to graduate school because Bonnie did, and that sounded smart. So, and then
2: here I am. What would you say is the uh, assumption uh, that people would have about a place like that that is the most incorrect?
1: Hmm. There's a lot of assumptions people have about places like that uh, that are sadly correct. That are correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, and of course they're different places now than they were when I was I mean that was nineteen the late seventies. Oh yeah, like, yeah I mean I mean that the, the what I my that was kind of, of like first, Cuckoo's
2: Nest, you know. It
1: was yeah. it no, it absolutely was like Cuckoo's Nest. And it's like one of my first jobs was being one of those guys in the white, white outfits that basically would, you know, somebody was going crazy to hold them down and you know, give them a shot. You know, it's like it was uh Now, one of my favorite, uh, (laughs) this this is only fun with hindsight. Uh, I was, I was, it was my first job there before I went to the geriatric thing, but I was, so I was, I was in training as, as a a psych tech. It was just the guy in the white, white suit, Uh, you know, just hanging out with the patients. And, and so the, the trainer said, they gave me this guy as a, as a client and said, we want you to work with him. And now, and here, and he had the thing that there's no longer this diagnosis, but Alan, you'll probably remember this diagnosis. It was called, he had hemophrenia. He, Do you remember hebephrenia? It was, it was, it involved inappropriate, referred to inappropriate, it schizophrenia basically, but it was, it, 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 the symptom was that was, that was prevalent was inappropriate laughing. Yes. So they gave, they gave me the guy and they wanted me to stop his inappropriate laughing. And so it's this this is actually also the story of one of my first cre- cre- I think actual creative therapeutic things, so I, I love this guy. He was all, he was uh, all, he, I called him an old guy. He was probably thirty something years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, at the time I was you know, it's, but but or he, I guess it, for me to call him old, he'd already been forty. It's like, but he he was a b- big guy, wore these overalls. He lived on a farm with his parents, uh, and he just laughed. He just said. He just, he'd sit around and go, <laughs> and, you know, so we'd be, we'd go, we'd go walk and take you play pool, do whatever we're going to do. So I decided, I thought, I, why would I want to stop somebody from laughing? That doesn't make any sense to me. So I thought, if I, if I knew why he was laughing, and this, this actually is, makes sense to me and, and shows that people weren't asking any questions. I, I go, has anybody even asked him why he's laughing? <laughs> so I asked him why he's laughing. And he said, oh, oh it's just a joke. And so well, I said, tell me the joke. And he said, there was this mutt, and he went into a bank, and he wanted credit (laughs) and he just started laughing. And so I sat there for a minute and then I started laughing. (laughs) (laughs) This was was getting pretty funny. And so I-
2: I kind of get it. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of, you know, it's it's half a joke.
1: It's half a joke. And I laughed about that. And and of course I, you know, I didn't ask him to stop laughing ever. But I told that joke for years after that, because I thought it was so hilarious. Uh, And people would just stare at me because the joke was I'd tell the joke and then I would laugh. Um, And then finally, somebody said, do you know the rest of the joke? And I went, no. And they said, well, you're supposed to say you almost said it, Patrick. The person is supposed to say, I don't get it. And you say, neither did the mutt. He uh-huh. went in and he wanted credit. Uh-huh. It's like it, yeah. yeah, so it was actually a joke. It's like I. It took me years to even care about whether there was the rest of the joke or not. So, but uh, so that's so called that psychoanalysis,
0: by the way. It takes years to get. To that's the- right. <laughs> <laughs> it takes years to get to the second.
1: Well, I was kind of disappointed because I liked the joke originally. Which just, <laughs> it was just, just the, there was this mutt and he wanted credit. Oh, that's, it's like a, that's
0: hilarious. That is that's actually yeah. great. I, I have one of those, but mine doesn't. It's not as funny. So my internship, so in the program I was in, Patrick, was up at UC Davis, and we had to do an an internship approved by the American Psychological Association to graduate to graduate. So um, there were all these pre what they're called pre doctoral internships they're similar to what a medical doctor does in terms of a residency, right? Kind of a thing. So we had to do a year a long program that was approved by the APA. And there's a, there's a bunch, that, that time I applied, there was a bunch of programs all over the States. And, um, but the issue is, is that, that the stipends was incredibly low on most programs. I mean, literally the average stipend was $6,000 a year. They pay for a doctoral level psychologist, 500 bucks a month. And I had a family with two kids and, or one kid and one kid coming, right? My daughter, Danielle was born and my son, Nicholas was in the belly, right? So um, I couldn't, I couldn't swing that. I didn't have that kind of money laying around. So I looked for internships that had a bit more of a, a stipend. So there was three of them that, that fell into that category. One was the military. I could join the army. Or the Air Force or whatever, mm-hmm. and but I had to then commit to um, I think three or four years after the internship. So that means the next four years of my life were tied up. Which I was considering in the Army since I had already been in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. I'd go in with six years, and then I would be I'd have that much time. And you know the salary was almost like thirty six thousand dollars a year, something like that, mm-hmm. if I went into the Army. So. The next one, the highest pain one, where it was at um, Fairfield Hills Hospital in Newtown, Connecticut, and this was a state mental hospital for the both criminally insane and for the insane that couldn't function um, out in society. Yeah, they paid eighteen grand, and then the next one was Rikers Island in New York for the criminally insane. So I interviewed at all three, right? because those were my top three choices. Rikers Island freaked me out. I swear to God, man, it was a scary experience going through there. I mean, big doors, big keys, and stuff like that. Fairfield Hills Hospital, Noon Connecticut was a little bit like that, but a little less prison oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Like in Rikers Island, I was afraid for my life. I chose to go to Fairfield Hills Hospital, and the first rotation I was on was on a ward where they all the patients were very seriously, seriously compromised in terms of their ability to function, and they had polydipsia, which me mean, meant that the uh, phenothizines that they'd been taking, the psychotic medication, had had created, had damaged their brains so they couldn't regulate their thirst. They were always thirsty and they could never satiate it. So they would drink literally three gallons of water and still feel like they were parched, that they couldn't. And when you drink three gallons of water, your body goes into a real medical crisis. Your electrolytes are thrown off. And most of these people got violent when they did that. So this ward was shut down. All water, access to water was shut down. The bathroom would only be open for 10 minutes every hour with staff in there because they would put their head in a toilet bowl and drink out of the toilet bowl. I mean, they were that thirsty. If a nurse left a urine sample on the counter, patient would Mm -hmm. run up and grab it and drink it. (laughs) I mean, any fluid around was like considered gold for them, right? (laughs) Well, on on um, the unit, we had um, a patient that had murdered his son because he thought his son was the devil. And God had talked to him and told him that he had to kill his son because if he didn't kill his son, his son was going to destroy the world. So he snuck into the house with a claw hammer and came up from behind his son and then hit him in the head and kept hitting him in the head until he was dead. And he was obviously restricted to the unit, right? And the doctor, the medical, the psychiatrist and the staff were really pleased because they felt he was doing better. And, and on our ward, if patients were doing better, they would get a grounds pass where they could go to the snack chat, mm-hmm. snack shack on, 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 the, on the campus and stuff like that. But this man couldn't go because he was of danger to society right because of this murder that he had committed obviously because of his insanity so he started to tell the staff that he realized what a mistake he had made and this is a a big thing because up to this point in time he had been justifying the murder because he really saved the the planet and we should be thanking him for him he made an ethical decision yeah made an ethical decision kill my son or sacrifice his son yeah sacrifice my son for the planet you know for (laughs) so he he did what he thought was the right thing and you know and obviously you know they were waiting to see if he could get any insight into in touch with reality and he finally started to say god i just started to realize how wrong this was how terribly terribly wrong and everybody was kind of like excited that man, he's finally getting insight. And, you know, and I'm a little, you know, smart ass little (laughs) intern. (laughs) I decide to ask him, well, can you tell us what you mean when you say you were wrong? Before we granted him the pass, I thought it might be good to understand what is the depth of his thing. So he said, I was wrong because I murdered the wrong son. There you go. It was really the other one.
2: He had two sons
0: had two sons and what he had realized is that god had come to him and said you killed the wrong son and that you have to go kill the other one and that he was hoping to get out so he could go ahead and sneak up on him and do the same thing with this other son
2: wow these are good questions to ask
0: we almost really
2: screwed up here is assuming don't
1: make it assumptions man i'm telling you
0: god man assuming we understood what he was talking about because Everybody was hoping, right, that somehow he would get this and understand what he had done and stuff like that. But he wasn't. He was gone, man. The medication didn't bring him back, Mm -hmm. not at all. And thank God that came, that got clarified. You know, (laughs) that we didn't send him back out because he would have taken. He would have bolted off campus. There's no question. He would have disappeared.
1: Yeah damn that's a great that's a burger a burger excellent question right there buddy it's like now now not not just off of free association not not anywhere in the well some of the one of the caliber because of people being hurt but child molesters were part of what who I treated at this at this forensic unit. And and I remember, you know, and people were, you know, committed there. You know, when you're committed as by, as not guilty by reason. And you and in Missouri at the time you could be because of of multiple sex offenders. Yeah. Uh is it means that if you actually get, you know, this is one of the reasons that people object to that sentence because if you because if your sentence there if if the if the clinical staff believes that you are have been rehabilitated if you're better if you if you are no longer uh, a threat that you can go, and so I remember talking to this and. and uh, uh, and this one guy, and he said he's he was making his case that he was a, a, a child molester and from from the kind of the backwoods of Missouri. And he said uh, he said no no he said I'm okay now. I said this is not going to be the case da, da, da And it's like and this is I didn't ask a great question, but this is one of the experiences I had where I learned. To not rush into things, and so I still I I sat silently just for a little bit longer when he said that, and he he said, "As long as there are no kids around, I'm fine." It's like (laughs) like, okay, that's the end of this session. (laughs) You can appreciate your candor. You you can go back to the ward now. (laughs) Yeah, I was so grateful that I waited. You know that I didn't. I I didn't make an assumption
0: it's so important that we don't make those assumptions. And even today, I mean, you know, um, you know, if somebody's, if I'm talking to somebody and they say, you know, I just thought about killing myself, but don't worry that, that I'm not going to do it. I don't sit there and assume that, that third don't worry is the same as what's going to bring me at peace. I say, Well, tell me how you've worked through that. I'd like to know how you right. drew, drew that conclusion. Don't worry because I'm not going to do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. I mean, right, right, right. Make, make, like make, make the case for me not
1: worrying. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> make the
0: case. I mean, I, I worked, he wasn't my client at the time, but I worked with this professional tennis player who, God, he struggled in recovery so much to surrendering because being a a professional tennis player meant that you're going to use your willpower to do anything. And he thought, I can control my drinking. I can control it. And I mean, he was a true alcoholic. I mean, as soon as he started to drink, he was out of control. And it led to so many destructive things in his life. I mean, including jumping out of a car on a freeway and getting hit by somebody going 50 miles an hour and then throwing his arm I mean the car hit him and his arm flew back and it ripped out all the nerves. so his arm totally atrophied he was a right-handed tennis player. He had to teach himself to play tennis left-handed. Now this was in his recovery and you know and he was you know he was better left-handed than I was with my right hand I mean I'm right-handed guy I mean right. he was that kind of an athlete but that's the kind of alcoholism this guy was. He finally got a year and then he went out drinking again tried to said to himself, well, you know, it's a year now, maybe I can control it. And of course he didn't. And he got depressed and suicidal and started making his trips to psychiatric hospitals and went to Kaiser and was in Kaiser Mm -hmm. and finally was let out of Kaiser. And I I don't know all the details, but he went home, told his mom and dad, look, I finally got it. You don't have to worry about me anymore. They thought it meant that he was Mm -hmm. fine. He had just planned to jump off the cliffs in PV. And that's what he did. He picked up his car, drove up to the cliffs and jumped off the cliffs and killed himself. (laughs) Yeah, You know, and the parents thought, Oh my God, he's finally getting it. He's finally got it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's so tragic. We just can't assume anything in this and especially around mental health issues, man. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Ask those questions and just, uh,
2: uh, so these experiences are kind of, um, I I don't want to use the word desensitized, but it, They teach you to care without caring so much that, you know, you, you guys get knocked off your center of gravity, right?
1: That it destroys you every day. So when you go back home, yeah, I guess. Yeah, maybe that's, that's always been an interesting one for me because people would say, and I'm sure you get this too, Alan, they go like, how do you do what you do? Because I couldn't do it because I would take it home with me all the time. It's like, I'm not saying there haven't been times where that's the case. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't times where you hit things that are, you know, and, and sometimes smaller ways. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, uh, but that's, I've never really done that. Have you, Alan, has that been, was that an issue for you?
0: No, I wouldn't say um, for some reason I've been mostly able to keep it separate or keep myself Mm -hmm. separate from and not overly take responsibility for people not 100 percent of time there's been a few yeah, yeah. where where that boundary got blurred for me patrick but most of the time i'm able to keep a pretty healthy boundary between what i take on what i you know i got early on in the training is don't take your clients home with you let them mm. stay at the office you know you know, you, when you're home, you're home, you're living your life. You, mm-hmm. You're responsible for the therapy, not responsible for their lives. That's the message I got in my training.
1: I'll tell you, the hardest have been when a relationship comes, not only ends, not just the relationship ends, but when a relationship comes apart in my office, it's like, you probably know what I'm talking about, Alan. It's like, it's like where, where the awareness of the aware, it's like, there's three people in that room There's the couple and there's me. And it, and it, and it's not like somebody walked in with that awareness. It's like, it becomes, it becomes obvious in that session during that time that this relation that this relationship is not going to survive. And, and it's like, those are, I mean, I can feel that I can feel tears behind my eyes when I say that those are gut wrenching moments or have always been for me. And I, and and now I will say that I'm very grateful that what I've learned to do is come home immediately and and hug and kiss my wife and tell her how grateful I am that we have what we have because, because, you know, because, you know, somebody who's been through a divorce, it's like, that's a bad thing. And I don't want to ever have to do that again. And, uh, but it's, it's just so much raw pain.
0: One of the reasons I love you, Tom and is cause I think you and I are very similar in this way is that we've really embraced our life and our experiences and learned from them. You know, I think how we got here from there is that we really at some point showed up and started to really examine ourselves and what this all meant. And mm-hmm. started to to own who we were, so we could become what we could be. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been a journey. And look, you know, you can hear neither of us did it perfectly. I've made mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm certain Tom has made mistakes mm-hmm. along the way mm-hmm. and recovery is not a guarantee you're going to be perfect, you know. You know, right. we're going to fall on, on on this journey. But, you know, I keep coming back to, and I've seen it in my own life, it's how we pick ourselves up when we fall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know What do we do at that point? That's where who we are is really defined, not by making the mistake, but how we deal with it. And sometimes that takes a while, you know, you make a mistake mm-hmm. and you got to go in, you got to go process it. And it takes a couple of years mm-hmm. to separate the wheat from the shaft, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. To really get to what's going to nourish you and grow you, but it is possible, man. And I think that's what Tom and I have found in this journey in recovery.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what you, about that, Ellen, and what you learn, I think too, is that, that, and I, I don't know, I think I've gotten better at this probably in my sixties my is, is the idea that, that to really let go, I could get this conceptually before, but I don't know that I've put it into practice until maybe I'm doing better now is that, You know, whenever there's a a, an issue, a problem to be solved, or something like that, we're taught to to always work toward fruition. We're always taught to bring that to resolution, and we're so future oriented with that. When the truth is, our life, our in any given moment in our life, some of those ongoing issues are part of our life. It's just part of the day. And it's, and it's like, you know, we, we, we need to keep doing the things we need to do to be responsible. But it's also our job not to let those things distract us from our day-to-day life. Yeah. You know, just, just am I taking care of, you know, playing with my, my old cat over there that needs extra attention these days? Am I, am, I, am, I being, am I doing what I need to do to be a good husband? Am I, you know, uh, am I showing up for the podcast with, you know, with, with, you know most of my brain cells working? That one's a check. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. So listen, Let tell us about our next show, Patrick. What are we going to do?
2: Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to let Tom pitch that one because I think it's a great idea. We're going to be having a couple guests on to talk about some support. of their support. support.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk, we're going to take, we're going to have a couple of people that, on from um, that we, that we all know. Uh, that, that we know from our support group too, but they'll talk, they'll let them talk about themselves, but there, there are two people that I personally believe I pitched these two folks, folks as guests, because they are people that I believe are really, they really have some mastery over, uh, in their personal lives. They're not, they're not, uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't even know if one of them is or not, but they're not therapists. I don't believe, um. But they really have some mastery over building a support system in their recovery and really making good use of that support system. You know, we we give lip service to that all the time. But the idea about that is it is it is the most important thing any of us can do. And yeah. so, so I want to talk to people who, and specifically not from the point of view of being a therapist, but, but from just being somebody who's out there and just what, 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 how did they, how almost kind of the questions you're asking uh, to us today, Patrick, I wonder how, how did you get this? Where did you get these, these, uh, this, this understanding of support and what, you know, what does support mean to you? How, you know, I always want to know how, de- how deep is your bench? Because I'm a big believer in depth on the bench that basically I've known people who have one or two support people. And then if those people are not available, they're out are they're shit out of luck or they're or they this is emotional sobriety thing where they get offended and they're hurt and, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's like it's always up to us to have enough enough of a support system. And these people are going to be great guests about this, I believe.
0: Yeah, I agree with that.
2: I, I can't wait. Right. And we're, we're taking Easter off. And uh, just before we sign off, uh, I was hoping Alan, you could say a couple words about your book.
0: It's- well, yes, I'm, I'm very excited. My new book is going to be released in June and um, it's called 12 essential insights for emotional sobriety. And um, we will be posting some information, how you can pre-order it through fourth dimension publishing 4D DPHD.com is where the pre-order um Um, possibilities exist. And I'm also excited to say that Tom and I and Vince Mm -hmm. Hyman, who I've talked about before Mm as my editor, we're working on a book, Emotional Sobriety, One Day at a Time. And I'm hoping that's going to be the follow-up to this book, Mm -hmm. is that we're going to have a lot of daily reflections on emotional sobriety, a thought for today, a reflection Mm -hmm. on the thought Mm -hmm. for today, and then some, uh tom called it try it on for size right? try, try, try it try man. it, try <laughs> it yeah
1: because you got to put it into practice but let me say this i i you know i've read i've read uh, uh i don't know if it's it's gone through some transformation since i read it but i read your your manuscript for your new book it's, it's it's a wonderful wonderful book and the only objection i have is that you turned down my title for it which was the wit and wisdom of dr berger <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, mm-hmm. uh, so i do i do i do still have an issue with that but but uh uh but the book is excellent and definitely i'll keep saying this people should get out there and pre-order it and have it have it to them as soon as possible thank you patrick all
2: right thanks guys uh do a sign off, Tom, and I'll patch it on in the end there.
1: I, I will. Uh, <laughs> well, th- listen, thank you, Patrick, for bringing this up. I hope th- uh, this almost, I wonder if this is, th- this may be some of my little should stuff in my head, but, but it, it might've been Phil uh, a little self-indulgent today, talking, talking back about our, uh, my past. And I don't know how Alan feels about that, but I hope, I hope there was something in what we were saying that's been used, was useful to other people listening in. And I appreciate, I, I appreciate it. I like working with you too, Patrick. And, and, and the idea is. I also appreciate your interest in all of this. It's always so. It's always so clear to me that the your your interest from your own point of view, both as a as a professional, as a producer, and as a as just our friend, that it, this stuff really matters to you. So it it, it it was it was a really nice conversation to have.
2: I thought so too. Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, okay. have a wonderful week, audience. Happy Easter. Happy Easter,
1: everybody. It's the circle it goes round, round, round. Look for solutions. Be your own friend. Never say never in either direction. Look in the mirror the trust the reflection. Where it starts, right right here. Won't you look to your heart? It's always